This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hey, it's Amna. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. The U.S. House of Representatives finally has a new leader. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. Guilty pleas are piling up in Georgia. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. And in New York, gag orders aren't keeping the former president quiet, but they are costing him thousands of dollars. Joining me to discuss this week's biggest headlines is Taylor Poplars, Washington correspondent for Spectrum News. Also with us is Zoe Clark, political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of It's Just Politics, and Nancy Cook, Nancy's senior national political correspondent at Bloomberg News. A big thank you to you all for joining us. All right, Taylor, let's start with Mike Johnson. Tell us about the new House Speaker. Who is Mike Johnson? What do we know about him? Yeah, it's it's remarkable just to be asking that question over and over (laughs) again, because most Americans have not heard of him. He's a Louisiana congressman. He's only been in office since 2017. So by Congress standards, he's a newcomer. Uh, He represents pretty much most of Western Louisiana, a very conservative area. He, run, he represents a district that he really faces no competition. He ran unopposed in the last election cycle, uh, a deeply religious and conservative Republican. He is a constitutional law attorney. He spent about two decades practicing law, but mostly for conservative religious causes before he got into politics. He served just under two years in the Louisiana state legislature before getting to Congress. And since then, he's kind of been behind the scenes, but you could in many ways point to him as a deputy to Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. They served on the Judiciary Committee together. They both tried to help Donald Trump overturn the 2020 election while Jordan was kind of the public face and more Americans know who he is. Johnson was the one basically sketching out the plans as like the architect of it. Um, so a lot of Americans are saying, who is this man now? He's not a prolific fundraiser. He's not a household name, but now he's the most uh, powerful Republican in the country. Well, unlike Jordan, he was able to get the support of the House Republican Conference. All 220 House Republicans president voted for him on Wednesday. Why are they so unified behind him? (laughs) It's a great question. I think there's two factors of it. One was pure exhaustion. It was 22 (laughs) days without a House speaker. I was there every single day on the Hill. The, The members were extremely frustrated and exhausted. The reporters covering them, the staffers staffing them. Everybody was over it. These were long days, long nights. Johnson was the fourth 
fourth candidate to be considered after McCarthy was ousted. The second side of it, though, is that because he's only been in office for six years, he's relatively unknown. He hasn't had a lot of opportunities to make many enemies. He is a deeply conservative Republican. So a lot of the members who helped orchestrate Kevin McCarthy's ouster are saying, oh, well, Johnson, he's aligned with us and we'll be able to help him. You know, he'll be able to help us out. For the more moderate members, you think the New York congressmen who were kind of united in blocking Jim Jordan from becoming speaker, they're saying we've had good interactions with Johnson and we know he's a bit more conservative, but he's a nice guy. He's willing to hear us out and we'll kind of see what he does moving forward. Zoe, what about that level of experience, as Taylor alluded to there? Johnson was first elected to the House in 2016. He's never led a powerful committee. An Axios analysis said he's the least experienced speaker in 140 years. In fact, GOP Senator Mitt Romney told NBC News that, quote, inexperience seems to be a qualification. Zoe, does experience matter for this role right now? I mean, time is going to tell, right? Um, but he, oh, you know, let's keep like saying all these things that just sort of explain where we're at. He only met President Biden, who will be a significant negotiating partner on the budget, for example, for the first, third time this week. You also have Republican Senator Susan Collins saying she's going to have to Google him to learn more. So, I mean, you know, in terms of does experience matter, this means in many respects he is going to learn on the job. And the transition into the job is fraught with just huge stakes and consequences for the country. As I mentioned, we've got the possible government shutdown in three weeks. Then there is aid for Israel, Ukraine on the table. Then there's federal aviation funding and farming programs, just to name a few. I mean, it kind of comes to mind the whole building the plane, you know, while you're flying it. And let's not forget, he will struggle with the same narrow majority that his predecessor did. Let's back it up. Actually, three weeks ago, when Florida Congressman Matt Gates led the move to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republicans tried and failed to unite around three other candidates then. Here is what Gates had to say about the GOP's new leader. The swamp is on the run. That's- MAGA is ascendant. And if, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement, and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, uh, then then you're not paying attention. Nancy, what do you make of that? Is Matt Gates right about the power of the far-right Republicans in Congress right now? Well, I do think that the far-right does have a lot of power. I mean, Mike Johnson is of that world. He was one of the key architects um, to help to try to overturn the election, as Taylor said earlier. And he is very much of that. And he's now the Speaker of the House. You know, you have to remember that he's never even chaired a committee in the House of Representatives. Representatives, and he is a Trump ally, so he is ascendant. I would put one caveat on that, though. You know, Jim Jordan is very much also from the MAGA class, and his bid for speakership was blocked by, you know, about 18 to 20 moderate Republicans in the House who felt like they just couldn't get behind him, and they felt like conservative groups were attacking them and trying to push them towards him. And so I do think that there is such a narrow margin in the House that moderates still play a key role and they block Jordan. And so while MAGA is certainly on the rise, you know, there's still people who are getting in their way. They don't just have a full runway of power. Some of our listeners are sharing their thoughts. Here's what Timothy had to say. He says, Johnson's unanimous election means there is no such thing as a moderate Republican. Cortland from Virginia Beach shared their thoughts, saying, to me, this selection represents a continuing danger, and that's the elevation of biblical conservatives to positions of top political leadership. So, Taylor, let's talk about what 
Republicans are up against now. We know the GOP hardliners who kicked out McCarthy from leadership uh, did so in part because he was working with Democrats to keep the government open last month. And that spending deal deadline is fast approaching again. So what indications do we have about how Mike Johnson is going to tackle that? That deadline is November 17th. Uh, it's it's about as far away as it took us to get a new speaker over the last three weeks. What's interesting is Johnson outlined when he initially launched his speakership campaign last weekend, he said, hey, there's a very good chance we're going to have to pass a shorter term spending bill, which is exactly one of the reasons McCarthy got kicked out of the job. But Johnson was pretty upfront with it and said, I think I would want this to last until either January or April. That will give us time to get the House back in order. That will give us time to actually negotiate and vote on all 12 appropriations bills, which Congress should be doing each year, but they haven't in decades. And right now, the hardline conservatives who were frustrated about McCarthy's approach just a few weeks ago are saying, all right, Johnson, we hear you out. And I think it's because, as Nancy was saying, you know, they view him as an ally, even more so than Kevin McCarthy, who tried to handle both the Donald Trump wing of the party, but also the more moderate wing of the party. But the question is, is can they actually agree on the short-term spending bill, avoid a shutdown so Johnson doesn't have to deal with it within his first month on the job, and then have a few more months? But it, we really have to see, because of that tight margin, he can only lose four or five votes, depending on how many members are present and voting. And he may have to end up working with Democrats as well. Here, in fact, is part of what House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said after Speaker Johnson was elected on Wednesday. From the very beginning of this Congress, House Democrats have made clear that we will find bipartisan common ground with our Republican colleagues whenever and wherever possible for the good of the American people. And House Democrats have repeatedly done just that. Zoe, when you look at what we've heard from Jeffries and other Democrats, how are Democrats positioning themselves with Speaker Johnson now in charge? Well, let's go back sort of earlier in the week. You know, so many of the statements that came from congressional Democrats on Wednesday were basically, you know, we're so glad the Republicans got their acts together. Uh, maybe not that in so many words, but they definitely, you know, threw some shade at the whole entire process. Um, but then they went on about how concerned they are about how conservative and far right the speaker is. Um, you know, the past 48 hours have been filled, as we're talking about, with stories and reports about where Mike Johnson stands on issues, that he's anti-abortion. He's written about homosexuality as being, quote, inherently unnatural. As we've already noted, an architect of basically legally trying to overturn the 2020 election in the House. And this this is what Democrats are going to be focused on. This is what they will continue to talk about and particularly doing this as they're leading into the 2024 election. And, of course, we'll just absolutely begin to fundraise around. Nancy, we saw Johnson's first order of business was to pass the resolution stating U.S. support for Israel in its war with Hamas. But what about approving additional funding for Israel and aid for Palestinians, as President Biden has called for? Well, he has been a strong supporter of Israel throughout his time in the House. And so I expect that he will certainly, um, you know, prop that up and, and work with President Biden to do that. I think that the aid to Palestinians is a much more open question. And then, you know, the other thing that I'm really watching is what happens with the funding for Ukraine aid. You know, he has said that he very much opposes that. Many of the House Republicans do. And I think that that is a real risk for Democrats. Biden really wants to see that continued. And there's staunch opposition to that in the House among a lot of these conservative members. All right. Lots more to come from our guests after this short break. Stay with us. 
This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Let's get back to the conversation. At least 18 people were killed and more than a dozen injured after a man opened fire at a bowling alley and later a pool hall in Lewiston, Maine, on Wednesday night. Police are still searching for the 40-year-old suspect. Authorities say he is armed and dangerous, and areas around Lewiston remain on lockdown. Here's Maine Governor Janet Mills speaking at a press conference Thursday afternoon. We are strong. We are resilient. We are a very caring people. In the days and weeks ahead, we will need to lean on those qualities more than ever before. You can stay tuned to your NPR station for the latest on that story and more. And now back to news of the new House Speaker. While not exactly a high-profile name, Mike Johnson played a leading role in efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So, Nancy, remind us, we've touched on this a bit, but how involved was he in the efforts to subvert the election results, both inside and outside of Congress? He was hugely involved. Um, You know, Representative Jim Jordan was really the public face of it and really going on TV and doing a lot of the forward-facing things. But Mike Johnson was really a huge architect of trying to overturn the election. You have to remember that he led the amicus brief signed by more than 100 House Republicans in support of this Texas lawsuit that tried to invalidate the election results and forced key swing states that Biden won, and those were Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And, you know, as Taylor said earlier, he's a constitutional lawyer by training who has worked for conservative groups. So he was really heavily involved in kind of coming up with the strategy behind the scenes and the legal options to try to overturn the election. And even the other day, he was asked by a reporter, you know, you overturn the election. What do you have to say for yourself or you tried to? And he was, uh, he didn't answer the question. He ignored it. And some of his house colleagues booed the reporter who asked. And so, uh, you know, it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch. He's now the Speaker of the House and he was intricately involved in trying to overturn this, trying to make sure that Congress did not certify the election results. And now he's really going to have to work very closely with President Biden. So Nancy, how big a deal is it? given all of that, now that he's in charge of a chamber in Congress, or do we know yet? I think that we don't know yet, but we have an election year coming up. Uh, You know, 2024 is really, the election is almost a year away. And I think that it's going to be fascinating to see how he 
handles the election, how he handles things moving forward, but also what his relationship with the president looks like. Um, You know, President Biden sent out a statement congratulating him. He called him the day that he became the speaker. They have met, um, uh, you know, he was at the, uh, Johnson was at the White House this week to talk about, you know, some of the funding things that are coming up. And so there is definitely outreach from the White House, but I, I think that it is a key thing to watch because he is someone who has denied the fact that the president, President Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. Well, Mark in New Orleans has written in with this question. Why is there little discussion of the decision not to support a more moderate speaker like Tom Emmer? Zoe, it's worth reminding folks for a fleeting moment. On Tuesday, Minnesota Republican Tom Emmer was in the lead to be speaker. Emmer withdrew later that evening and actually former President Trump took credit for killing Emmer's bid. So how much influence did Mr. Trump actually have in the speaker choice, Zoe? Yeah, it's a great question. And it sort of goes back to earlier where we were talking about just sort of how far right the Republican Party or at least the caucus in the House as a whole has gone. You know, I think we need to be careful here to some extent about how we interpret Trump's influence within this race, because unlike, let's say, you know, a Republican primary in a far right district, the speaker race in many respects is not just a Trump endorsed race. It can be based on previous internal relationships within the caucus. And again, how much of sort of a firebrand you are. Um, you know, was he basically able to end Emmer's bid? Yes, absolutely. But he also wasn't able to just go out and dictate a speaker, Jim Jordan. So again, the fact is the politics of Trump on the Republican Party as a whole, that is not in doubt. Um, this is a party that's basically given power to the far right. Um, but, you know, what happened with the ousting of then Speaker Kevin McCarthy or, you know, quote, my Kevin, you know, so the influence is there. Um, the fact that, again, someone who pushed for overturning the 2020 election as Speaker of the House is fundamental. But when you think of swing districts, let's say heading into the 2024 election, districts, let's say, where a Republican won their congressional seat, but the district went for Biden, those seats are important to Republicans to hold on to the House in 2024. And they don't want to have to deal with the Trump questions or, you know, for example, the possibility of a vote on a Biden impeachment, let's say. So, Taylor, what's your take on this? What could all of this mean for the 2024 election and for House priorities in the lead up to the election? Well, Speaker Johnson, he after he became speaker, he did not really take any questions from the press in the first 24 hours. But on Thursday night, he sat down with a friendlier host, Sean Hannity on Fox News. But they had a lengthy conversation over 40 minutes where he outlined a lot of his priorities that kind of could, you know, lay the tea leaves of where 2024 could go. He talked a lot about being open to the idea of still impeaching President Joe Biden, despite the fact that House Republicans have yet to present legitimate evidence that Biden was directly involved with his son Hunter's business dealings, was engaging in bribery, anything like that. He also talked a lot about how he views the role of the U.S. in helping other countries who are at war. Obviously, Israel and Ukraine are at war right now. There's a growing kind of movement within the far right side of the Republican Party to separate U.S. aid for Ukraine and for Israel. I think that's something we could see talked about a lot on the campaign trail over the next year. And Johnson said, Ukraine needs help because if Putin takes over Ukraine, you know, that he's not going to stop there. But he also said, I believe we should approach Ukraine and Israel separately. And I've covered Congress and looking at someone like Ohio Senator J.D. Vance 
who's been one of the loudest voices in the room saying we should stop helping Ukraine, we need to help Israel but keep it separate. Johnson in many ways is sounding like him, and Vance has the ear of former President Trump. So I think that will continue to be a campaign topic. Also, politically speaking, this is a bit inside baseball, but because Johnson is so not well known, he needs to get out on the road and he needs to introduce himself to Republican voters who he needs to make the case for why you should trust me to continue to lead the Republican caucus and why we should stay in the majority in the House. When you talk about former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's talents, fundraising was probably at the top of the list. He loved going from state to state, event to event, shaking as many hands as possible, and he raised tens of millions of dollars, sometimes in just over three months. Johnson has raised just over $5 million since he entered Congress. So that's going to be a steep climb for the Republicans. And whether people like it or not, money plays a big role in what happens in these elections. So that'll be something to watch over the next year. Let's now move on to some of the criminal cases that former President Trump currently finds himself in, starting in Georgia. Georgia prosecutors charged Trump and 18 others over their efforts to overturn the state's 2020 election results. Last week, former Trump attorneys Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro both pleaded guilty. They also agreed to cooperate with prosecutors. This week, it was former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis. So, Nancy, who is Jenna Ellis and what did she have to say about what she did? So, Jenna Ellis is a a woman who was a huge Trump supporter when he was in the White House. I would even call her a, a Trump sycophant in a lot of ways. She had little experience in constitutional law, but she was one of the people who sent President Trump a memo Um, a few days before the election was slated to be certified in Congress, suggesting that he could stay in power by basically um, pressuring Vice President Pence to not certify those election results. And she was heavily sort of promoting that strategy to him. She was at the White House uh, sort of meeting with him and Powell and and other lawyers to kind of push this. Um, But she pled guilty this week to, um, you know, these charges saying that she helped to author these plans to disrupt and delay the congressional certification. And she also agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution, which is a huge deal. In When she appeared in court, she oppress, expressed a ton of remorse for her actions. She cried and she said that she was basically following the lead of much more experienced attorneys, um, which is, I, I think, sort of a, a hint at Powell and and Giuliani. Um, It was a fascinating moment and I think also shows that a number of those attorneys who were involved in trying to overturn the election have now agreed to cooperate with the prosecution. And what that means for Trump will be something that I will be watching quite closely. Well, Zoe, what about that? CNN has reported that six co-defendants have discussed plea deals. Mm -hmm. What should we understand about that? And what could that mean for the case against Mr. Trump? Yeah, it's sort of twofold. So, you know, the more folks who take a plea, the more information you get, the more you're able to build that case. They turn on Trump. They say what they know. It hurts Trump. And then it basically gets to the inner circle, including the former President Trump, folks like Rudy Giuliani. Um, The second is it just means more time and attention can be paid on the case against Trump rather than all of the uh, co-defendants. So it's, you know, just sort of a measure of how much time you want to spend on 
sort of the lower rung defendants as opposed to, you know, the former president himself. Um, just quickly, I want to know, you know, Jenna Ellis uh, was uh, came to Michigan, actually, in, you know, post-2020, um, in the chaos of it all. She was here with Rudy Giuliani. And what a difference, um, you know, legal issues can make. Um, the, the things that she said in front of a committee, uh, literally at the state capitol about the election, and then this week, uh, seeing the, you know, sort of tearful response, it was, uh, it was quite a 180 and pretty shocking if you saw her. Uh, do what she did years ago, and then the the person that was in the courtroom today, uh, this week. Now let's move to Trump's New York civil fraud trial, where his former attorney, Michael Cohen, took the stand to testify. The $250 million lawsuit accuses the former president of falsifying business records and years of fraud. Cohen spoke to press after his testimony. You may have seen Mr. Trump storm out. He stormed out because they wanted to make a motion They wanted to make a motion to dismiss the case, to which the judge responded, yeah, absolutely not. You know why? Because he will ultimately be held accountable. And as I said the other day, that's what this is all about. It's accountability. Taylor, tell us about what happened in court this week and specifically Mr. Cohen's testimony, how important it is here. Yeah, people might remember Michael Cohen's name a couple of years ago. He was testifying before Congress famously. This was before pre-pandemic times, but he was once a staunch Trump ally, worked alongside him for years. I think at one point said he would take a bullet for Trump, you know, saying, I am, I am there with you. And then he turned on him as Trump turned on him. And Cohen ended up admitting after he spoke to Congress that he was not truthful about Trump's financial statements and how Trump was conducting his business. Fast forward to now, and this was the first time Cohen and Trump were coming physically face-to-face in a number of years after their relationship fell apart. And this was Cohen testifying about how Trump was handling the books for his giant organization that had all all these skyscrapers in major cities and other business deals. What was interesting is Cohen depending on which lawyer was questioning him, he gave differing responses about how involved Trump himself was in dictating what the the book said, what the checkbook said. And Trump's team came out at the end of it saying he contradicted himself, depending on who was asking him questions. So clearly that shows we're winning and there's no case there. But Cohen has made clear that he can't necessarily be called the most reliable witness in the past because he's lied to Congress before. He's admitted he's kind of turned over a new leaf. In many ways, he's become the face of an anti-Trump resistance hero. And you often see him on cable news talking about his criticisms of the former president. What I think was interesting is New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, she came out after and said what Cohen had to say during this, this testimony was important, but it's not what our whole case is based off. They, they, She tried to poke holes in the fact that we recognize he's not, you know, a, a clean witness in many ways, but he still worked for Donald Trump, and he's still saying that Trump was involved in certain extents, but would often take a hands-off approach and say, well, it would be great if this could be done, but I'm not going to directly say to you, change the number in the checkbook or, you know, alter alter a figure there. So it was interesting to hear, and Trump was obviously frustrated while he was in court dealing with a few other issues there, but they've become rivals. But Cohen was by his side once, and now you see this kind of fractured divide playing out in this case that really could impact the Trump family's business moving forward. Well, another part of this case we're watching, the judge in the New York fraud case fined Mr. Trump $10,000 for violating a gag order that was issued earlier in the month. On Wednesday, Judge Arthur Angeron called the former president to the stand to question him about comments Mr. Trump had made earlier that day. Here is what Trump said to reporters in the court hallway. This judge is a very partisan judge. 
with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of him, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. On Thursday, Trump's attorneys requested the judge reconsider the fine. After watching the video of Trump's comments, Judge Engeron defended his decision in the courtroom, saying, quote, anybody can run for president. I'm going to protect my staff, end quote. That's according to CNN. So, Nancy, what what is this about? How did Judge Engeron interpret Trump's comments? Well, Judge Engeron really interpreted Trump, Trump's comments as him violating the gag order, which prohibited him from attacking or, or talking about uh, or criticizing the court staff, you know, in person on social media. And Trump's lawyers tried to say, well, he wasn't talking, you know, the person besides the judge, he was actually talking about Michael Cohen. The judge really saw it as a dig at um, one of his law clerks. And uh, it was a fascinating moment. You know, Trump came to the stand. He hasn't been on the stand in a courtroom in over a decade. And the judge basically said, he said, I find that the witness is not credible. And then he levied a $10,000 fine. Um, I think it was a fascinating preview of what it could look like as a number of these court cases unfold with Trump in the courtroom and potentially on the stand. And I think it also showed that this judge is sort of not willing to, uh, you know, listen to Trump's excuses if he starts attacking people on social media or in these gaggles after the appearances. Well, it's officially fall. And you know what that means, dear panel. Halloween parades in Tompkins Square in the East Village. That means dressing up with your dog, sometimes like a mummy. To be honest, when you have a family and a dog, you just want to do what's easiest. So wrapping ourselves in gauze was, uh, you know, one of the easier things to do. After the dog parade was nearly canceled, a dog food and wellness company stepped in to cover expenses and to save the day. Organizers say about 15,000 people attended. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Let's get back to the roundup. I want to turn now to the war between Israel and Hamas. The Biden administration wants Israel to delay a ground war in Gaza. According to The New York Times, the administration is hoping to allow for more humanitarian aid into the enclave and to continue hostage negotiations before a potential ground invasion. Zoe, tell us about this. How has Israel so far responded to that request? 
Yeah, well, as you note, certainly a large-scale ground invasion has been delayed, um, but this is tenuous right now. Um, The New York Times, just to continue the reporting just today, is saying that troops are at the border and ready, uh, but that, quote, political and military leaders are divided about just how, when, and even whether to invade. And, you know, there's the question of what's the long-term strategy if there was a ground invasion. You know, President Biden has continued to talk about the mistakes he sees that United States took after September 11th. Um, it's interesting, too, some some polling that, that just uh, came out actually shows um, that nearly half of Israelis are opposed to an immediate military ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. Earlier polling from just a little more than a week ago found that 65 percent supported a a major ground uh, offensive. So, you know, you're also just seeing internally uh, how Israelis are thinking, again, about a large-scale ground invasion. Nancy, as we know, a major complicating factor is the fact that there's still some 200-plus hostages being held by Hamas, believed to be in Gaza, among them Americans. What is the status of those hostages? Well, this week we saw four hostages released. Um, We saw a mother, daughter, and then two elderly women. Um, It was fascinating because the elderly women who were released this week talked about uh, what conditions they were held in. And one told the story of basically being held in these underground tunnels uh, that Hamas has a whole network of them in Gaza. They said that they did receive food and medical care. But I think that that really shows, uh, you know, how difficult a ground invasion will be because Hamas has all of these tunnels, these networks. They're embedded basically in a really urban environment alongside Palestinians who live there. And I think that it shows the difficulty of, you know, trying to uh, go into Gaza, trying to release these hostages when, you know, it's a little bit unclear where they're being held. And there's this whole kind of network of secret hiding places that the Israelis uh, and Americans just don't really totally understand. Um, And there's so many people still being held, children, women, elderly people, that I think that's really complicating Israel's calculation about whether or not they should go in because they don't necessarily want those lives lost or for Hamas to use those people as a shield as they have been. Taylor, it's an enormously complicated, enormously high-stakes moment, and Israel is one of America's closest allies. So if there is more daylight, or it seems like there's more daylight between what Israel's doing and what the Biden administration has been saying they'd like to see, what could that mean for the relationship between the two nations? Well, we obviously saw President Biden travel to Israel recently, and he embraced Benjamin Netanyahu. They've known each other for a long time. Both have been in office for years upon years. And Biden still in many ways conducts himself as if he was chairing the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as he did for a long time. He really enjoys going abroad and kind of putting the U.S. flag in the ground and saying, we're here to help. I think what's interesting is there's been a balancing act for the Biden administration saying Israel has a right to defend itself, but it also needs to abide by international law when it comes to war. And obviously what's been playing out in Gaza in many ways looks not great. And there are innocent people there who are victim to this. So I think the Biden administration is trying to figure out, all right, assuming this ground offensive starts, how do we keep international law 
being abided by, and but also give Israel the right to defend itself in that way. It'll be interesting over time, especially because Netanyahu's tenure in Israel, especially over the last couple of years, has been pretty rocky. His own people have been really questioning of his leadership and their confidence in him. There, We saw those mass protests throughout the last year as he was trying to transform the judiciary. So you have to wonder if they will at some point view Netanyahu as crossing a line. And if Biden says, listen to your own people, or does Biden back away and say, we're going to, you know, try to police you in a way we deem appropriate, but we're not going to get too involved because that could, you know, get us closer to U.S. troops having to get involved. Well, the impact of that war is being felt here in the U.S. on college campuses across the country. Former Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan dropped out of two Harvard Leadership Fellowship programs after the university's response to Hamas's attack on Israel. This also came after several Harvard student groups shared an open letter blaming the Israeli government for the attack. To not come out and forcefully say that this was wrong uh, and to uh, celebrate and uh, congratulate and cheer for the terrorist acts, uh, I think it was pretty outrageous. Uh, And, you know, of course, we do have free speech and the students had the right to to that speech, but they don't have the right uh, to have the, uh, the leaders of Harvard just condone and ignore those kinds of things. That was Hogan speaking to CNBC on Tuesday. In Florida, meanwhile, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is ordering state universities to ban pro-Palestinian student groups from campuses. Nancy, what authority does Mr. DeSantis have to do this? Well, I think that he has made a number of changes at state universities over the last year, and this is just sort of the latest edict. Um, and, And a lot of those not just this move, but a a ton of the moves that he has made there, I think, have been challenged in court or questioned by his critics and Democrats. Um, I I think that he would argue or his team would argue, well, he has the right because these are state-funded universities. I think his critics will argue, well, that's a violation of free speech and there will likely be challenges to it. But I think what is happening on college campuses just, you know, across the country is this really fascinating moment of, uh, you know, leaders really trying to balance the concerns of, uh, you know, donors and uh, Jewish students and just people who really feel strongly that they need to come out and condemn uh, the attacks on Israel versus people who have a more sympathetic stance towards the Palestinians. And I think a lot of university leaders, not just in Florida, but as Hogan was talking about all over the country, Columbia, Harvard, et cetera, are really struggling with how to messages to the students in a way that is empathetic and really, um, you know, gets at these deeply felt emotions about the Middle East. Zoe, this is uh, something we're seeing on campuses across the country. And this divide is unusual in terms of support we've seen here in the U.S. when it comes to the conflict uh, in Israel and the Middle East. I wonder how you're looking at this, whether there's a generational aspect of play here. We know that there is. I mean, you know, when you when you look at the actual numbers, we know generationally that there is just there's less support for the state of Israel among younger folks than there has been in decades previously. Uh, Michigan Radio, where I am based, it is on the campus of the University of Michigan. We are seeing the same kind of protests um, and also vigils. And I think it goes to show just sort of the moment that we're in. Um, I will also say, you know, that that Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, she is a Democrat. 
Democrat, a well-known Democrat throughout the country, also being the the wife of former uh, Congressman John Dingell. And, you know, there have been protests at, at her local district office over her support for Israel. So, you know, it's happening on campuses. It's happening uh, all over the country. And it leads to, again, as we're talking about this, this heightened tension. Taylor, when you look at that tension, some of that is spilling over here in the United States. We've seen a rise in anti-Semitic attacks that predates this war that has been ticking up for years. Also a rise in anti-Islamic sentiment. The Biden administration has been asked about this. How are they messaging on this issue? It's interesting because Biden, obviously, politically speaking, has had to balance the moderate wing of his party and the more progressive wing of his party. On the more progressive wing, you have some members, high profile members like Rashida Tlaib from Michigan, who is Palestinian American, who's been very outspoken about her frustrations with that aspect of foreign policy. But the Biden administration has definitely deferred to a more kind of pro-Israel stance as this war is playing out. And I think what's tough is you're seeing these divisions within the Democratic Party. Even Congressman Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey has been on social media calling out his colleagues for not, you know, directly condemning Hamas in a more fruitful way. He's a bit more of a moderate Democrat, but you're seeing kind of that intra-party fighting. And I think the Biden administration is recognizing not only the foreign policy impact that could have, but also the political impact for the party And it will dictate kind of how he views his decision making moving forward as he has to, you know, grapple with how the U.S. should be involved, how an aid package is going to get passed and what members are willing to get behind. Well, one battle that might be nearing its end, at least for now, is between Ford and the United Auto Workers. On Wednesday, Ford and the UAW reached a tentative labor agreement. The UAW is still negotiating with General Motors and Stellantis. UAW President Sean Fain spoke to reporters about the negotiations at a protest in Detroit on Monday. We don't want our members out here. So, you know, we want to get our members off the picket lines and back to work building the greatest product in America. But... We want our fair share. We're not going to continue going backwards as we have been the last 20 plus years. More than 45,000 workers have joined that strike since September. Zoe, the UAW still has to approve the deal with Ford, but what does it include? Give us a rundown. Sure. I mean, it's a historic deal. I mean, everyone's, you know, it's a record deal. It's a historic deal. I mean, it just, it is. It's uh, 25% raises over five years, um, increases in starting pay, uh, bringing back COLA, the, the cost of living adjustments, increasing retirement contributions. Um, you know, there were a, a number of things that the UAW had pushed for that I think for many were just sort of like non-starters, um, such as a push for a 32-hour work week. But overall, I think workers are feeling like this is a strong deal. As you note, they still need to ratify the contract. But it's a pretty remarkable thing for a new UAW president who was only sworn in in March to see. On Tuesday, General Motors posted a quarterly profit of more than $3 billion. That's down 7 percent from the same time last year. Taylor, what do we know about how the strike has affected revenue for those big three automakers. It certainly impacted them. You take thousands of workers away for six weeks and production stops, that's going to have an impact on the bottom line. But what a lot of the workers and these union reps have been arguing is these companies were bringing in so much money before this that even with this strike, they're still able to turn profits in many ways. You look at Ford, they released their latest earnings report on Thursday, and in the third quarter, their earnings increased. But the, the guy in charge of their 
their books, he did report that they estimate right now, based on the strike, even if it comes to an end in the next few days or the next week or two, the company estimates it's lost over a billion dollars in terms of cars it was able to physically build this year and sell. So that's going to impact the bottom line. But the union reps argue over and over again, the CEOs overseeing these companies are very well paid. And the, overall, they're still seeing their earnings go up. The stocks are bouncing back up now that this tentative deal has been reached. So there's, there's an interesting divide there. Nancy, we know this was an issue that President Biden has been deeply invested in. He joined those striking auto workers on the picket line. When it comes to their message on, on the economy and what's at stake here, have we heard from the White House about the potential for this deal? Yes, President Biden put out a statement just saying, you know, they, they were thrilled by, uh, you know, they were very supportive of the potential emerging deal. You know, I don't think they're trying to get totally involved in sort of the machinations and the details of what the workers potentially agree to, but they were very supportive of it. You know, you have to remember that President Biden is running for president next year. He has positioned himself as such a big labor leader um, and is really looking for labor's huge support, not just in sort of their votes, but also helping to get out the vote in these very key swing states. And so he is going to try to keep that relationship with labor as strong as possible heading into an election year. And Taylor, when it comes to 2024 and both that labor community, but also the economic message, there's no one more message, an issue that's more important for the administration. Is that right? It is right, because voters see how the economy is impacting them every single day, whether they're going to the grocery store, whether they're trying to figure out how to get their child educated, whether they're trying to figure out if they can afford a new car. And it's interesting, you hear President Biden often talk about the dignity of work. That's something that kind of old school pro-labor Democrats have have talked about for a long time. But if you listen to a lot of the Republican presidential candidates, they're starting to talk about that too. And they're trying to reverse course and point the finger at Biden and say he's not been overseeing a healthy economy, even though there have been signs of improvement as we've come out of the pandemic. But over and over again, that old phrase, it's the economy, stupid. At every election cycle, it still does matter. And we'll leave it there. That is Taylor Poplar's Washington correspondent for Spectrum News. Also with us today was Zoe Clark. She's the political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of It's Just Politics. And Nancy Cook, senior national political correspondent at Bloomberg News. Thank you all for joining us. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember Richard Roundtree, a.k.a. Shaft, one bad mother. Actor Richard Roundtree starred in the movie Shaft, released in 1971, which was among the first of the blaxploitation movies. He passed away from pancreatic cancer on Tuesday at the age of 81. We're going to head to break on some Isaac Hayes. Stay with us for the biggest headlines from around the world coming up in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and... Snacksing? Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Now let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. 
Today, the latest on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, the Australian Prime Minister visits Washington, and what does the new House Speaker mean for U.S. funding to Israel and Ukraine? Our panel this hour, Alex Ward is national security reporter at Politico, anchor of National Security Daily, and author of the forthcoming book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Alex, good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nancy Youssef is national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. And with us also is, I'm biased, one of the best in the business, Zeba Varsi, my colleague from the PBS NewsHour. Zeba, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Amna. Well, now let's begin with the look at a humanitarian situation in Gaza. It's been under siege by Israel since the surprise attack by Hamas that killed more than 1,400 Israelis. More than 200 people were taken hostage by the terrorist group. Four have been released so far. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says that more than 7,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, over 2,900 of them children. In the occupied West Bank, more than 110 Palestinians have been killed in violence. That is according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. Nancy, on Thursday, Juliette Tuma, the chief spokesperson for the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, said if UNRWA runs out of supplies, that's the U.N. agency there, if they run out of supplies and fuel, they'll have to significantly reduce their aid operations, in some cases bring it to a total halt. What is at stake if more aid and fuel doesn't reach Gaza? I think a bigger humanitarian crisis that we than we've seen so far, including um, the residents there are suffering from dehydration, not being able to get clean water, hospitals closing, and potentially the UN um, saying that, as they said, that they would have to leave altogether. And they have provided um, housing um, at schools for hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Uh, to give you a sense of scale in terms of how little aid is getting in and why the situation is so dire, before October 7th, roughly uh, 100-plus trucks arrived every day. In the past week, it's been in the 80s. And so um, it is... It is really um, dire in terms of the amount of resources getting in. Now, the Israelis have pushed back on this idea of getting more fuel in, for example, the, while the um, Palestinians have said they need it for hospitals and um, um, other electricity sources. Israel said that they believe that um, there is enough fuel there and that they're worried that that fuel would be used towards um, towards um, launching munitions into Israel. And so that's one of many reasons that it's been so hard to get um, resources into into Gaza. But as we've seen that the every day that passes, um, there's a threat of not just the crisis born out of um, people fleeing their homes and the strikes, but now health-related um, issues coming up because um, there are not enough basic resources in Gaza. The global humanitarian agency Oxfam says just 2% of the normal food supply for Gaza has been delivered since the blockade and starvation, they say, is being used as a weapon of war. Our ability to assess the situation with very precise data is extremely difficult to really, and we can't reach people, we can't reach affected communities to also do those assessments to understand really how much supplies do they have left. I would expect that people from um, with better incomes might have more supplies, but people that are struggling, knowing that more than half of Gaza is lives under the poverty line, are already starving. 
That was Bushra Khalidi, Palestinian policy lead at Oxfam, speaking to Al Jazeera English on Thursday. Alex, we have seen mounting pressure from the European Union, from a number of other Arab leaders for Israel to pause those airstrikes to allow more aid in. What's the likelihood of that happening? It's not good. I mean, you've already seen the United States come out and say, look, what they want is a humanitarian corridor, perhaps a humanitarian pause in order to get some things in. But in terms of a ceasefire or anything like that, which, uh, you know, Russia, et cetera, and other members of the international community have called for, uh, the U.S. is not in alignment with that. And so as long as the United States keeps supporting Israel and basically saying, look, um, you know, do care about civilian harm, try to minimize it. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you do have a right to defend yourself. And, you know, they, Biden has openly supported uh, going after Hamas and Gaza. As long as that continues, it's hard to see a major alleviation of the humanitarian crisis uh, there in Gaza. Uh, so at this point, as Israel is really hoping that the United States continues to um, provide that kind of cover. Well, this week we did see Hamas release two hostages on humanitarian grounds. 85-year-old Yocheved Lifshitz speaking through her daughter after she was released. She said that she went through hell but was treated, quote, well. We started walking in the tunnels where the earth was moist and it was always humid. We reached a hall where we gathered some 25 people. They were very kind to us and made sure we were clean and fed. We ate the same food that they did, pita bread with cheese and a cucumber. That was a meal for a whole day. Zeba, as we know, Hamas has now released four prisoners so far, two American-Israeli citizens and two elderly Israelis, all women. What do we know about the whereabouts and and the well-being of the rest of the hostages? Um, Now, more than 200 are still believed to be held captive by Hamas. And with each passing day, their families are going through unimaginable pain and Their suffering is unending and they're demanding that they be brought back home. But as far as what we really know, Israeli officials believe that these hostages are being held in tunnels. And that's also something that Yochevit said in that press conference that we just heard from, that they were taken into tunnels and uh, Hamas seems to have a vast network of tunnels inside Gaza. She also said that Hamas militants seem to be prepared for a long time. They had all the provisions uh, to attend even to female hygiene needs, medicines, etc. It it really remains unknown as to how and when these hostages will return home. But that seems to be the top priority for people in Israel and even outside in the rest of the world. Uh, There are many international hostages uh, held by Hamas as well. And that also seems to be one of the main reasons that a potential ground invasion remains halted at the moment. On Wednesday on the PBS NewsHour, I spoke with Mark Regev. He's a senior advisor to the Israeli prime minister and a former Israeli ambassador to the UK. And I asked him if there was still potential for a ceasefire if it led to the immediate release of hostages. And would he support that? Here's what he said. We would argue that the only reason we've had these, you know, four people released so far is because of the strong pressure on Hamas. They didn't suddenly become humanitarian. Uh, uh, So they're only releasing the people they have released, the four out of the over 200, uh, because of strong pressure on them. And we think if we keep the pressure up, the military pressure, the international diplomatic pressure on their allies, specifically on on Qatar, that will deliver uh, uh, more releases. Uh, Without that pressure, they won't release a single person. 
Nancy Al Jazeera says that negotiations, which are mediated by Qatar on a ceasefire and a prisoner exchange deal, are quickly progressing. CNN says there's been significant progress that could be a major shift. But what what kind of efforts are underway? What do we know? Well, it's a multi-nation effort, um, and as you noted, led by. Qatar. Uh, the Washington Post reported earlier this week that those negotiations that um, had accelerated in part because of more um, engagement by Qatar. I think one of the challenges is Israel has said that its goal and its ground offensive is to eliminate Hamas, its long-term goal. But in the short term, it needs to rescue as many hostages as possible um, while by reaching um, Hamas and reaching some sort of deal. And so um, the challenge becomes how do you thread that those two um, uh, aims um, from from the Israelis and and so uh, we've also seen domestic pressure within Israel. We saw protests earlier this week by some of the families asking that their loved ones be released, and Israel's trying to thread its own in, in needle of. Um, uh, responding to those families who are saying that they want their loved ones released and um, from those within the country who want to see a ground offensive begin and see a response to the October 7th attack. And so the challenges are the, I would argue, the political tensions um, within each side to reach something, some sort of settlement to, and, 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 I would just add, finally, the number of people that need to be released is really staggering. 224 um, more um, remain held. And so how you get negotiations going on that scale with these tensions for both sides internally, I think is the real challenge. Continuing with our coverage of Israel-Hamas war, at least 27 journalists are among the thousands who've been killed in Gaza so far. That's according to the latest tally released today by the Committee to Protect Journalists on Wednesday. Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael al-Dahdu, lost members of his own family, including his wife, son, daughters, and grandson in an airstrike. Here he is, speaking to Al Jazeera from the hospital where he'd just seen the bodies of his wife and his son, Mahmoud. Of course, this is a disaster right now, a big tragedy, especially it's perpetrated against women and children. No more, no less than a calamity. Large numbers of people's houses bombarded. Zeba, tell us about the conditions that journalists in Gaza are working under right now. Amna, the conditions are unimaginable. The journalists that we have been in touch with, we have our own producer, Shams Odeh, who's also been reporting for PBS NewsHour in Gaza. He and other journalists we've spoken to describe just how difficult it is to even reach places. There are, there's, there are, there's very little fuel, so public transport, any form of transportation is limited. There is no access to electricity, internet. They wait for hours and hours to just upload the material that they filmed, um, just going from the hospital to the airstrike sites is, is also very difficult. Um, We've seen visuals that they've sent us of multiple journalists huddled together, uh, trying to charge their phones, trying to charge their equipment. Um, These are the logistical challenges they face. The other challenge is, of course, of safety. What happened with the Al Jazeera bureau chief uh, has resonated and has really shaken journalists in Gaza because they all knew him. They all know him as an institution in Gaza, a veteran journalist who has always been a mentor to many of the local journalists uh, who have reported their international journalists who have reported their over decades. And and when they see those visuals of him breaking down, seeing his own family 
killed uh, in in this war, uh, and then he came back right the very next day to report uh, on on his on his show. Uh, that really has uh, affected all the journalists um, who are working on the ground in Gaza, and and they're working under heart wrenching circumstances with life threatening, uh, you know, threats to their life every single day. Nancy, journalists cover war zones all the time, right? But in Gaza in particular, as you're seeing journalists dying, their families being killed, and also as power supplies fade, the longer this goes on, how do you look at at just how the media will cover this story? It's a great question. I thought Zeb described beautifully um, what's happening there. You know, Wetl in particular um, was someone who the entire region knew. And so this became in many ways a very personal war for every one of his viewers across the region. And um, I was talking to someone who, who was there and he was saying every family in Gaza chooses either to group together as one family so that they're hit, they're all hit together, or to separate the family so that some survive. Those are the kinds of choices that are being made. And over time, if there are fewer um, people there to cover it, if there's fewer resources to, for those, those images to get out, very simply, we get a, an incomplete picture of what's happening. And it is the most basic responsibility we have in this is to let viewers see what's happening. Remember that it's people can't go in and out of Gaza, so we are dependent on these journalists in a way that we haven't in other conflicts um, to show us what's happening. And, and as Zeba so beautifully described, they are making heroic efforts to get those images out. So every day that it goes on, that it's harder and harder for them to get images out harder for us to understand what ha- what's happening there um, is just another day that we have less understanding of of the most consequential story in the world today. The Israel Defense Forces did release a statement in response to that missile strike that killed Wilde's family, saying, quote, strikes on military targets are subject to relevant provisions of international law, including the taking of feasible precautions to mitigate civilian casualties, end quote. The United Nations Security Council met several times this week to address that ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. The council, which is the most powerful body in the U.N., again failed to come to an agreement over a resolution to address the war. The resolution put forward by the U.S., Israel's closest ally, was vetoed by Russia and China, and Russia's resolution failed to get a minimum of nine yes votes. So, Alex, what was in these resolutions, and why hasn't the council been able to come to any kind of agreement on either of them? Yeah, so as I was alluding to a little bit earlier, there was the U.S. one was about seeking a humanitarian pause, quote-unquote, and the Russian-led one was one seeking a ceasefire. <clears throat> and the reason for the disagreement was basically what these countries want to see happen in the fight. For the U.S., it would be hard for the moment to say they support a ceasefire because that would not be as much support for Israel. And for others, they want a ceasefire because no one wants more conflict uh, in the Middle East and for the uh, possibility of a, of a wider war in the region. This led to pretty strong fights and words between uh, diplomats there and others, including Secretary Blinken, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, with their counterparts, with, Ru- with Russian counterparts and Chinese counterparts, basically saying, look, you know, the focus should be on the humanitarian issue at the moment. Israel has a right to defend itself, with the other saying, no, you, the U.S., are basically enabling a lot of the stuff that's happening. Those aren't direct quotes, but effectively the message. Um, and so 
you know, usually these UN Security Council meetings, while always sort of tense, are never so rancorous or lead to so much uh, drama to the point that we'd be talking about it on a show like this. So the fact that there is so much shows how high the tensions are, shows how high the stakes are, um, and shows really a major split between the major powers. Nancy, given what Alex has just laid out there, given their inability to reach an agreement so far, how much do you think the UN will determine this next phase of the war? So I think it depends on which part of the UN we're talking about. If we're talking about the Security Council, as Alex laid out, it's hard to see them passing anything substantive given the deep divisions within the Council, um, Russia and China, on one side, the U.S. on the other, as Alex pointed out. If we're talking about the bully pulpit of the UN uh, Secretary General, we saw this week um, him speak um, on behalf of getting more aid to uh, civilians um, in Gaza. I think that one could argue that's been slightly more effective than the votes that we saw this week. But the third group, and arguably the most influential one, is the one on the ground, UNRWA, which we spoke about earlier, because um, they, in many ways, are seen as a reliable um, voice on what is happening on the ground in Gaza and can um, speak to what they're seeing, what the needs are um, within, within Gaza. And so I think when we talk about the role of the UN, we have to think about it sort of in, in layers. And the, the one that we saw this week, what's, what we saw play out was the challenges of having effects in, in the General Assembly. But as you get closer to the ground, we've seen um, the UN have shaped the discourse and its plea for more aid um, to the people in Gaza. Well, on Tuesday, UN Chief Antonio Guterres called for a ceasefire in that war between Israel and Hamas. Here he is. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. In response to the Secretary General's remarks, Israel canceled a planned meeting with Guterres, and they called for his resignation. Israel also announced plans to refuse visas to UN officials. Zeba, how did other countries respond to Guterres's remarks, and particularly that call for a ceasefire? Well, Amna, as both Alex and Nancy have laid out, this was a week of intense dialogue in the U- in the UN, and we've seen a feud, bitter feud, play out between Secretary Gen- General Antony- Antonio Guterres and Israel. But he also uh, ended up tweeting, uh, posting at the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. He said that the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the horrific attacks by Hamas, and those horrendous attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people, essentially saying that what he meant in his speech was was not really him taking sides. Uh, But 
both the Portugal, his his origin country, has backed him. Uh, the Portuguese foreign minister said that his government supports Guterres's position on the Israel-Hamas war, and more and more countries in the U.S. are now appreciating his balanced approach. Uh, while every country condemned the terror attacks by Hamas on October 7th, more and more are also calling for the need to protect civilians in Gaza. Russia wants to portray this, this moment as the West and the rest, but there certainly is a growing emerging chorus in the United Nations for the need to address Gaza's mounting humanitarian needs. As the UN chief put it in his speech, the aid that is going in right now is, quote, a drop in an ocean of need. As Nancy mentioned earlier, only 84 trucks since Saturday, which is only which is a fraction of what is needed, at least 100 a day as per the United Nations. The European Council, uh, after Guterres' speech, uh, said that there should be humanitarian pauses for aid deliveries into Gaza. And today, a rare session of the UN General Assembly is hearing a resolution calling for ceasefire. Let's go to our inbox for a moment. We got this message from David in Texas, who writes, There shouldn't be any civilian deaths in Gaza right now. The Israel military has given them sufficient warning to vacate the north because they're coming. What else do they expect to happen when they stay in the danger zone? We also have this comment coming in from one of you saying Israel certainly has a right to exist and to defend itself, but it's losing moral ground on the world stage because its reaction is disproportionate. Alex, let's talk about that reaction from Israel to what we heard from the United Nations Secretary General calling for his resignation, announcing plans to refuse visas to U.N. officials. How significant is that ongoing disagreement and tension between Israel and the U.N.? Look, if we take a step back, what the U.N. What the UN sort of has been good at since the 40s has been moderating great power war and stuff like that. Anything kind of underneath we lead to these kinds of uh, conflicts and skirmishes. Uh, That said, you know, Israel for a long time has been critical of the UN, particularly because of what it claims is very harsh and, you know, somewhat biased treatment in that human Human rights security council. Uh, So Israel doesn't particularly like the body that much. Um, It constantly needs the United States to come to its defense and veto resolutions or say, you know, Israel has a right to defend itself, etc. So to have the UN uh, Secretary General come out and basically, you know, kind of say, Israel, you're somewhat responsible for what happened. It's not exactly what he said, but that's how they took it. Um, You know, of course, they were going to fight back. I mean, the way Israelis have talked to me about this situation is, look, you know, Al-Qaeda, it's not, it's an imperfect uh, comparison, but Al-Qaeda had its own rationale for doing 9-11, right? American actions in the Middle East, et cetera. Now, no American would accept that as a reason to make it like, okay, for 9-11 to happen. So for Israelis, they're like, yes, we get us, we understand all these things that you're complaining, you know, criticizing us about, but this was a major attack, uh, you know, in, in sort of comparative terms, larger than 9-11 in terms of population size. Mm -hmm. So for them, um, they see all these under, you know, all these criticisms about the situation, um, you know, as sort of moot at this point. They need to go against Hamas. So all this to say is that when it comes to the UN criticism, um, Israel was already predisposed to not be accepting of any criticism from from the UN, especially, and to have it from the boss. It sort of made them go, okay, we really need to force uh, back on this body. Well, in the meantime, the U.S. is building its military presence in the Middle East in response to that Hamas attack on Israel. Nancy, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the main objective for an increased U.S. military presence is to deter Hezbollah and Iran from joining the war. What can you tell us about the roles Hezbollah and Iran have been playing so far or the role they could play? 
Well, um, very broadly, Iran um, has, through proxies, um, sought to influence events in the in the Middle East. That is to not do it directly. And one of the groups that it does that through is Hezbollah, which um, they formed an alliance during the Lebanese civil war. It's a Shia-based group. We've seen Hezbollah launching attacks on Israel's northern front, and some U.S. officials believe one reason for that is to force Israel to move resources north, um, so that it's not. Um, doesn't have as many to go against um, Gaza. To this question of the sort of U.S. resources going in the region that you mentioned earlier, you're right, there's been a tremendous amount of resources. I think one of the big shifts that we've seen from last week and the week prior to this week is where the U.S. was at first sending resources in as a means to protect and bolster Israel defenses. This week, we saw more air defenses um, in support of the U.S. troops based in the region. And so I think that's why we're seeing things like the THAAD and the Patriot uh, defense systems and less talk about um, aircraft carrier strike groups, the, the second of which won't arrive until next week. And so the the ratcheting up of those strikes, 19 so far, on U.S. bases, drone attacks um, on U.S. bases, um, the U.S. says by these groups that are Iranian-backed was the, the reason we've seen this, this shift in resources going towards the region. Alex, those attacks with rockets and drones on U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria, what, what do they tell us about how Israel's war might escalate in other parts of the region? How are you looking at this? Well, the administration was pretty clear that these attacks were separate from that conflict. And if anything, they kind of have th- – these attacks were designed to to send two messages. One, you know, a repeat of, hey, Iran and Iran-backed prox- proxies don't. Like, you know, we're, we're sort of, you know, do not come after our troops and we will fight back against you if you do. Biden was very clear on Wednesday next to the Australian prime minister, you know, we will respond if you attack. The other, though, is that these sites, you know, an, an, an ammo uh, facility, et cetera, you know, no, no real, ma- no major casualties, no anything like that. They were sort of meant to go, hey, we are responding. We will hurt you, but we also don't want this to get out of control. And so while the administration, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, et cetera, say this isn't about Israel, uh, Hamas, and I, you know, you can take that for what it's worth. What you can say, though, is that they are thinking about it when they're developing their responses. And a story we're keeping our eye on. Hurricane Otis slammed into Mexico's southern Pacific coast as a powerful and dangerous Category 5 storm this week. Otis unleashed massive flooding in the states of Guerrero and Oaxaca, including the city of Acapulco. Otis has killed at least 27 people. Around 10,000 troops have been deployed to the area to move tons of mud and fallen trees from the streets. We want to move now to the war in Ukraine. On Thursday, the U.S. announced an additional $150 million in security assistance for Ukraine. That package includes surface-to-air missile systems, anti-aircraft missiles, ammunition, and cold-weather gear. Nancy, Russia has stepped up attacks in eastern Ukraine, and Ukrainian officials are claiming Moscow's forces have suffered heavy losses. How are both sides now preparing for another winter of war? Well, if you remember last winter, one of the things that the Ukrainian people suffered was electricity shortages because there were attacks on the infrastructure. So we're seeing Ukraine stock up on um, um, fuel and other supplies to for that possibility. In terms of military, we've seen the Russians try to build up their own military infrastructure so that they have the capabilities to not only be prepared for winter, but also be in, in place for next spring. 
And we're also seeing political preparations um, across the world. We are seeing um, debates about um, how to support Ukraine in the future. And we've seen pleas by the Ukrainians publicly to make the case, including in the United States. And so when we think about the sort of weeks ahead, um, there's not the anticipation that things will slow down the way I think some had assumed um, in past um, years of fighting that we'll start to see it, uh, more attacks on infrastructure and that as, that the preparation is not just for fighting in the weeks ahead, but positioning forces for when the weather warms in the spring and fighting will potentially become even more intense. Well, Zeba, another related story we're following this week, Russian lawmakers approved a bill revoking the ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, or CTBT. On October 6th, Moscow announced its intention to withdraw from the treaty to, quote, mirror the position of the U.S., which itself signed but never ratified the treaty. But what does, with, what does Russia's withdrawal mean? It is very significant, and the timing itself is quite interesting at a time of global tensions focused in the Middle East. Russia is all set to revoke this its ratification of this global nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, now, the test ban treaty adopted in 1996 essentially bans all nuclear explosions anywhere in the world. But the treaty was never fully implemented. Like you said, the U.S. itself is yet to ratify it. It was not ratified by China, India, Pakistan, North Korea, Israel, Iran, and Egypt. But there are widespread concerns uh, that Russia could move to resume nuclear tests to try to discourage the West from supporting Ukraine militarily as a signal uh, to not support Ukraine. Uh, many Russian hawks have now started speaking in favor of resumption of the test. And at the same time, when all of this is happening and Putin is, is you know, moments away perhaps on signing the revocation of this uh, treaty, Putin has also conducted a simulated nuclear strike in a drill uh, on Wednesday. So all of this happening all together certainly is very interesting, but Russia is clearly trying to signal something to the West. In the meantime, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed top European Union leaders and called for more sanctions. And I'm grateful for the sanctions, pressure on Russia. Each of the sanctions packages adopted, it's really needed. The key now is to ensure that all sanctions work to the fullest and that Russia cannot circumvent them. We see that this, this has become one of the Kremlin's top priorities to manipulate sanctions and to neutralize them. Alex, the Kremlin says sanctions have boosted its domestic economy and industrial production. They say they don't fear the prospect of, of more such measures. What do we know about the impact these sanctions are having and could Russia be facing more? Well, look, Russia has been dealing with sanctions for so long, and they've been doing what they've been doing in the world. Uh, there's always been a question about the impact of sanctions. And in fact, if, if the longer sanctions are on a country, or long as, you know, sanctions campaign, the longer they learn to deal with it and circumvent it and, you know, able to do what they want to do, despite the pressure. North Korea, for example, you know, one of the most um, sanctioned countries in the world, and look at the nuclear program they've developed, Iran as well. So for the Russians, I mean, I doubt that, you know, their economy has been improved by the sanctions, but I don't doubt that they've been able to work around it. We've already seen instances in which their economy has been functioning basically okay. They're still able to produce a lot for their military. You know, it's definitely reduced to a certain extent. And the fact that the U.S. has brought together a coalition of countries to target multiple sectors of Russia has made them stronger and more biting. 
But at the end of the day, the Russians are still fighting the war. They're still doing what they want to do in the world. And they have shown over the years no sign of deterring Putin from acting. I want to move now to China. On Wednesday, Chinese state media reported that President Xi Jinping said he's willing to overcome differences with the U.S. in order to work together and respond to, quote unquote, global challenges. That comes as China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, the top diplomat from the country, is visiting Washington, D.C. through the weekend. Here is what Yi said alongside Secretary of State Antony Blinken last night. China and the United States are two major countries. We have disagreements, we have differences. At the same time, we also share important common interests, and we face challenges that we need to respond together. Alex, how important is this trip right now, given the state of relations between the U.S. and China? Yeah, I was about to pull out Google Translate, by the way. Uh, um, <laughs> no, uh, uh, huge. I mean, the United, remember that whole Chinese spy balloon thing? I mean, <laughs> and, you know, everything the administration's been doing against China. I mean, this has been a major competition between the countries. There's been a break in relations multiple times. Uh, this has really been a charm offensive by the United States to get that relationship, again, not on good terms, but on workable terms. And getting Xi Jinping to meet with Biden in San Francisco at the APEC summit in a couple of weeks, that would be a major, major moment. And who knows what the deliverables of that would be? I mean, but the, you know, as a, to that uh, paraphrase of Winston Churchill, better jaw jaw than war war, right? Um, it's better to have the two leaders of the country, and ultimately Xi Jinping is the paramount leader of China, having them discuss things, figure out ways forward to lower tensions, to understand each other. That would be a, a huge win for the, what Biden is trying to do towards China, but that still would not negate the major competition between them. So no way would that meeting all of a sudden make, you know, sunshine and and, and, fly, uh, and, and, and lovely days, but it would mean a reduction of tensions at the time when the U.S. is already focused on two major wars. It does seem among the many differences to overcome right now uh, it is China and the U.S.'s respective support for Israel and uh, and its war in, in against Hamas right now. In fact, China's representative to the U.N., Zhang Zhun, spoke at the U.N. Security Council meeting on the war this week. And here's what he had to say about the United States proposal. To draft is seriously out of balance and confuses the right and wrong in terms of approach. The draft was introduced in haste and it lacked the consensus it deserved. The draft does not reflect the world's strongest calls for a ceasefire and an end to the fighting. It does not help to resolve the issue. President Biden has repeatedly expressed strong support for Israel since those October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks. But China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, says Israel's actions have been, quote, beyond the scope of self-defense. And this week, he clarified that countries have the right to self-defense, but they should abide by international humanitarian law. Nancy, when you look at, at this dialogue and these statements, how important is China's stance on this war? Well, I think China's trying to position itself such that it is an important voice in this conversation, that that in this um, West versus rest discussion that we've mentioned earlier, um, that it is amongst those who um, is standing on the side of those that it that some perceive as being um, under sort of Western oppression, um, like the Palestinians. We should 
note that the Chinese have historically um, sided with the Palestinians um, for decades, actually. Um, and so like, there's a history there. But I think broadly speaking, China wants to be a voice at the table, a voice on the side um, of Russia, of, of, of the Palestinians, and that this is the first sort of foray into it. That discussion, we we we've seen the Chinese, in fact, um, steer away from even using the the name Hamas in this discussion. It's been short of sort of condemning um, the attacks by Hamas, and so um, I think it is trying to show that it can it is a major voice and an influential one um, as we approach um, a period at some point where we're going to be talking about the end of this conflict, how to um, what happens after the expected ground invasion, what is the outcome and how how are each um, side represented and who's at each side of that table. China is basically saying we we believe we should be on on one on that side of the table um, with Russia to to speak on behalf of, of the Palestinians. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was in Washington on a state visit this week. President Biden called Australia, quote, an anchor to peace and prosperity. The two leaders are also pushing to arm Australia with U.S.-made nuclear-powered submarines. Alex, when you look at this relationship, this alliance, how important is it to President Biden in providing a counterweight to China in particular in the region? Huge. I mean, Australia is a you know, middle power, but it's incredibly influential in the broader Indo-Pacific region. It has been having its own long-term spat with China, especially uh, on some diplomatic spats and trade spats. Uh, but getting Australia's you know military stronger, getting it to be almost orientationally stronger against China is something that the United States really wants. It's something that they've been working towards since the surprise uh, AUKUS agreement for the nuclear submarines. Uh, it has been, and they've been working together, getting Albanese over here um, to discuss with Biden is to show that while Australia has always been a strong partner of the United States, part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, and you know, going back to to world wars and how and how they work together, that there's now a real uh, sense of purpose, a coordinated purpose, in that you know China cannot navigate how it wants in the region, and Australia seems keen to really help in that effort. Well, also on the top of the agenda for this visit is the AUKUS, that 2021 agreement between Australia, the UK, and the United States to share military technology, better integrate their defense industrial bases. Prime Minister Albanese, Nancy, he secured those submarines, but is that packed? Is that in danger of stalling? Where does that stand? I think there it's 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 a bold proposition in terms of providing Virginia class subs um, to the Australians. Uh, we saw a Congressional Budget Office report earlier this week that said that that deal could endanger the U.S. supply um, of subs and its aims to have sixty six um, in its fleet. Very simply, this is an ambitious proposal, and the Biden administration needs to pursue legislation that would underpin this agreement for things like ship transport transfers, excuse me, export controls, and then funding for that subproduction. And so you saw at the press conference, um, the president was pushed on, can you promise? And he hesitated and said he would do his best. And I think one reason for that is that this requires a lot of steps between um, 2021, when it was introduced, and its implementation years from now. And that will depend in part on congressional support. Before I let you go, I want to peek into each of your notebooks on what you're watching for the week ahead. Ava, kick us off. What are the what are the stories that you're watching? I think the biggest story this week, once again, would be the conflict uh, in the Middle East and what really happens of 
the much anticipated ground invasion into Gaza. We do know that tanks, uh, Israel sent tanks into Gaza to prepare for what's ahead. Um, and, and at the same time, as we have been pointing out, both Nancy and Alex and I have been pointing out, um, now as a view, that the humanitarian situation in Gaza remains extremely dire. We've been talking to people who talk about not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, uh, and this at a time of constant bombardment. So whether or not the UN is able to... Um, negotiate its way for more humanitarian pauses, whether there is a ceasefire, though that seems unlikely, but also an impending uh, intensi intensifi intensifying of this conflict uh, is something that we'll be watching closely. Nancy, what about you? Give us a quick look at your notebook. Sure. Well, I'm a military correspondent, and so I'm curious about the effects of the U.S. strikes yesterday. Does it change the pace of the drone attacks that the U.S. service members have um, suffered over the past 10 days? Um, just since we've been on the um, air, the U.S. is saying there's been additional 20th one um, in Syria. And so um, I'm looking for those developments, how the, military, the U.S. military response shapes events in the region. Alex, what about you? Yeah, other than watching Barcelona Real Madrid this weekend, uh, um, I, more seriously, um, you know, the, the EU is having a pretty major summit next week in which they will discuss uh, Middle East peace in general. And Spain, the rotating presidency, uh, is going to care very deeply uh, about pushing this. And that could put some effect on the U.S. And then very briefly, I know it's domestic, but my family's from Lewiston. Um, while they don't yes. live there anymore, uh, they have a lot of friends there and uh, they just, you know, everyone's safe. They want everyone to be safe, but they know how tight-knit that community is. And so, um, you know, Thoughts to everyone who's uh, from Lewiston and, and stay strong during this, this crisis. We're thinking of them all. A big thank you to our panelists this hour. That's Alex Ward, national security reporter at Politico, author of the forthcoming book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump, Nancy Youssef of The Wall Street Journal, and Zeba Varsi at the PBS NewsHour. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.